0: When we say in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, we say much about who Jesus is. We should say, for clarity, that Jesus is the Christ because the words Jesus Christ combine a proper name and title. He was also called Jesus of Nazareth, referring to his childhood home. There really isn't much room to doubt that the man Jesus of Nazareth existed. Saying this man was fully man and fully God does have implications for us. Calling him the Christ is filled with theological implications as well. Join Pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss the Jesus of history, God's only Son, and our Lord. Welcome to the Full Day Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson.
1: Darn fine to see you again, Kirk.
0: It's good to be back home in sunny Arizona.
1: You are off to Minnesota for a few days.
0: And I had lovely weather, so I have no complaints.
1: Okay. Well, good to be back in the saddle with you today.
0: Yeah. So uh, you were involved in the, what do we call that group that looks at the...
1: The Sermon Study Group, I suppose.
0: Yeah, you were involved in the Sermon Study Group, and...
1: Was that helpful to you? It it was. You know, there was a controversy. We are dealing today with that section of the Apostles' Creed that says, And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So that's a really big uh, collection of topics to go into. What does it mean for Jesus to be fully God? What does it mean for Him to be fully human? And the virgin birth, Uh, that's a question for some people, some of our listeners, I'm sure. So uh, when we looked at that on Tuesday morning, we had all the pastors around. Um, Pastor Steve made an audible call, and he said, hey, let's uh, change the text that we're looking at. Let's look at the great Christological passage from Colossians chapter 1. So he preached on that this past Sunday. Pastor Jackie at South Scottsdale Presbyterian Church preached on that same passage from Colossians chapter one, and Pastor Clint at the Midtown Presbyterian Church, he took different verses from the birth narratives mm. in the Gospel of Luke. So, uh, you know, two chapters on Jesus being born in the Gospel of Luke, but different sections of that to try to illuminate what it means for Jesus uh, to be the Son of God, mm. uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So lot. I'm not sure how we're going to get through this well, episode.
0: It's, well, it's going to be, uh, well, we'll just do the best we can. It's a, Again, it's a very large subject and a large topic. Let's begin by looking at the text that preached, uh, well, Steve preached on and Jackie preached on.
1: Right. I remember translating this from the Greek when I was in college and our Greek Professor wanted to make sure that we had a chance to get into this because it's such an important portion of scripture. Uh, Do you want me to read that, Kirk? I would, thank you. This is uh, a description of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross.
0: Now, what translation did you have there?
1: I think that is the new Revised Standard Version translation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just a great, great, I mean, you you think of so many phrases that have been lifted up from Colossians chapter 1 and put into great hymns of faith or praise songs. Just a lot to to dwell on how uh, can pray through that as a um, prayer of praise to God and to uh, God, the son, Jesus Christ. And for all that he is a uh, really wonderful and rich portion of scripture.
0: Now, you mentioned in our pre-meeting that Ephesians has a parallel to that.
1: Yes, this is Ephesians chapter one. And let me read that too. This is from verses three through 10. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, under Christ.
0: That's a beautiful text too, and it speaks of that idea we had in our last podcast about adoption.
1: Yes, uh, adoption. That's why we use the, the adoption as sons. That is, uh, in that legal context back two thousand years ago, it was sons that were able to inherit, and in most situations, uh, daughters were not. So uh, that's why it's using that and meant that we're heirs mm-hmm. through Christ.
0: Do you remember in your exegesis when you did that? I know that was way back in...
1: A few years ago, back yeah. when I was in college, right?
0: But do you remember any particular words or things that were either difficult to translate or or especially important?
1: Well, when he goes through that list, when Paul does, of uh, what, where is it? all the different powers and whatnot, whether... Um, Thrones
0: or dominions or rulers. Rulers
1: or powers. So it's that last phrase, powers, which is used in uh, Greek uh, in the later centuries to talk about angelic powers. I guess in Hellenistic Greek it's used that way. So that was an insight for me. He's talking about both the uh, human institutions we know about and then uh, things in heaven, powers that we know about. Uh, So I think that was helpful, uh, understanding that.
0: Well, Bruce, we talked um about in our little pre meeting that you know maybe some people are struggling with the phrase "the virgin birth," but you said that wasn't really a concern of the early church
1: no and you hear that um in the twentieth century twenty first century people say, "Well, gosh that was Christ really born of uh, a virgin, does that make sense? Uh, I think that's the rise of, you know, kind of scientific thought and, and what can be proven and demonstrated and all, all that approach to knowledge. But that's not the concern of the early Christians. The early Christians were more concerned about showing that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. Mm-hmm. And when you get to the early discussions uh, after the New Testament, uh, trying to figure out what the theology of Christianity, what's true, Uh, that's the center of things. There was this controversy about whether Jesus was fully human Mm -hmm. for some people and then for others, was Jesus fully God Mm -hmm. or just kind of a uh, semi-God-like.
0: Right, or the Gnostic belief that Jesus only appeared
1: to be a human. Exactly. So taking
0: it kind of the other way.
1: So you have some uh, beginning to... um, statements to address that controversy in the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed is from the 3rd century. And when we look at that parallel section in the Nicene Creed comparing it to the Apostles' Creed, uh, this is what we have there. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God from true God begotten, not made, being of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. Mm -hmm. So that reflects that concern. You have to say Jesus was both fully God, everything that we mean by God, that's what Jesus was, and everything that we mean by human, that's what Jesus was as well.
0: Now, Bruce, why do you think, well, I know you know. <laughs> Bruce, tell us why it's so important that he be
1: truly human. So that he could be the perfect go between between ourselves and God the Father. Mm-hmm. He needs to uh, be something unique. Has to also be unique as a human being without sin, mm-hmm. so that he could pay the price for our our mistakes, our faults. The um, perfect lamb, the perfect lamb, and somebody that sin. really gets us. Jesus gets us. He
0: suffered. He he was tempted just like us, but without sinning.
1: And he went through all, all those things that that we experienced. You know, growing up, you know, falling down, bruising his knee, knees, all those things. Mm-hmm. He knew what it, like, what it was like to uh, eat with friends. He knew what it was like for friends to be faithful and for friends to uh, not be faithful to him. You know, you had the full range of human experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's important, especially when we come to rough patches in our lives where it's hard. You know, life can be very hard. And understand that Jesus understands adversity, mm-hmm. God understands adversity. Uh, and it's a, a wonderful thing that we have following Jesus, the God who gets us.
0: Now, the early church was battling heresies. We we mentioned that in our first podcast. We talked about why this creed was came about. It was to combat some heresies that were uh, beginning to spring up. And so as we began to develop our Christology, we had some differing opinions about this Jesus and and who he was and his makeup. Um, The creeds, I think, do a good job of making us understand he's fully God, fully human, the God-man. But that wasn't everybody's views, right?
1: No, you had the Nestorians. They tried to uh, separate the divine nature of Christ from his human nature. And we had the Monophysites that uh, tried to limit Jesus' as a solely divine, but not really human. Uh, so some of the statements of the early creeds are addressing those two heresies in particular. It really all came to a head in the 5th century AD with the Council of Chalcedon. So they came up with some very clear language. Um, uh, let me read a portion of that Creed yeah. of Chalcedon to you. We then, following the Holy Fathers with all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood, truly God, truly human. Mm -hmm. And and it goes on from there to talk about that uh, in in greater detail. Um, Unfortunately, with the Creed of Chalcedon uh, leading up to that, there was a lot of misunderstanding, and part of it Mm -hmm. was the translation of words between Latin and Greek and a lot of misunderstanding between churches in the West and the Middle Eastern churches. And after the Creed of Chalcedon, there's a break. So the Middle Eastern churches, which are today represented in in such uh, traditions as the Coptic Christians in Egypt or the um, Armenian Orthodox Church, uh, they are non-Chalcedonian. So because of just a lot of not so much what it says, but just the way it was said and all the background, you know, they're just like, ah, oh, well, we'll kick out this church leader. Well, I'll kick out this church leader instead. No, we back that person, you know. It, it, it was really bad.
0: <laughs> they were really early Presbyterians. They just loved to fight.
1: Loved to fight, but they weren't fighting about whether Jesus was born of a virgin. I mean, that that wasn't their concern. So sure. that, That's kind of a late on the terrain type of controversy.
0: Hmm. Well, each week we've been looking in our podcast some of the creeds that are part of our confessional standards of the eco-denomination. We have uh, looked at the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Catechism. Do you have some quotes from those for us this
1: week? I do. I thought uh, first we'd look at the essential tenets and what it says about the Incarnation. Uh, last week we looked at the section of the essential tenets that talked about the trinity and they said that's the first great mystery of the christian faith and the essential tenets talk about the incarnation as the second great mystery of the christian faith Uh, so let me read why don't i read that first uh, paragraph of that statement and i'll have you read the second paragraph of that statement kirk if that's all right yes This is the second great mystery of the christian faith affirmed by all christians everywhere that jesus christ is both truly god and truly human as to his divinity he is the son the second person of the trinity being of one substance with the father as to his humanity he is like us in every way but sin being of one substance with us like us in having both a human soul and a human body. As to his divinity, he is eternally begotten of the Father. As to his humanity, he is born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. As to his divinity, his glory fills heaven and earth. As to his humanity, his glory is shown in the form of a suffering servant, most clearly when he is lifted up on the cross in our place.
0: Very, very well written. Isn't that very uh, precise language? Again, they have some good good work here on this. The second paragraph is, We confess the mystery of his two natures, divine and human, in one person. We reject any understanding of the communication of attributes that must result in a blending of the two natures, such that Jesus Christ is neither truly God nor truly human. We insist upon sufficient distinction between the two natures to preserve the truth of the incarnation that Jesus Christ is indeed Emmanuel, God with us, not one who used to be God, nor one who has merely been sent from God. Rather, in his coming, we have seen God's glory, for Jesus is the exact imprint of God's very being, and in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The divinity of the Son is in no way impaired, limited, or changed by his gracious act of assuming a human nature, and that his true humanity is in no way undermined by his continued divinity. This is a mystery that we cannot explain but we affirm it with joy and confidence.
1: Which makes you wonder, why do Christians argue so much about mysteries that you cannot fully explain? Because we disagree on what part can we explain and what part can we not explain.
0: Right. Well, and theologians have to have something to do.
1: That's right, you know. You've got to write a
0: new paper and you have to come up with something new all the time.
1: Well, some of those theologians need a new hobby, I think.
0: <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, that was, uh, that was really good. So do you want to look at the Heidelberg Catechism now?
1: Yeah, let's move from the essential tenets document of ECO to the Heidelberg Catechism. And we have statements in the Heidelberg Catechism, questions and answers, both about the Incarnation and then also about the Virgin Mary and uh, virgin birth and what that means. Uh, so we'll start at question number 29, which is, why is the Son of God called Jesus, which means Savior? And the answer there is because he saves us from our sins and because salvation is to be sought or found in no other.
0: Question 33, why is he called God's only begotten son since we are also God's children? And the answer is because Christ alone is God's own eternal son, whereas we are accepted for his sake as children of God by
1: grace. Which is, which is marvelous. We are part of God's family, really are. Jesus is God's son, and we're the adopted children,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, along with our brother Christ. The next question, question 34, says, Why do you call him our Lord? And the answer, Because not with gold or silver, but at the cost of his own blood he has redeemed us, body and soul, from sin and all the dominion of the devil, and has bought us for his very own. That's how precious we are uh, in the eyes of Christ.
0: And that was one of the points from Pastor Steve's sermon, that he is the Lord of heaven was one of his four points, I think.
1: Yep, that's right. It goes on.
0: Yes, question 35. Do you want me to read that one? Yeah, please. Question 35. What is the meaning of conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary? The answer is that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself our true humanity from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the action of the Holy Spirit, so that he is also the true seed of David, like his fellow humans in all things except for sin.
1: And then the very next question is kind of, so what? Mm. Why does any of this matter? And the question is phrased this way. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? And the answer is that he is our mediator and that in God's sight he covers over with his innocence and perfect holiness the sinfulness in which I have been conceived. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, any any barrier that we have to access to God, to being loved by God, being accepted by God, all that has covered by Christ. Um, That's so it, fantastic. It, it, it's not just a, a kind of a theory or a fine point of theology. It says this stuff matters in terms of our belief that we are really loved by God and accepted by God, that God's grace is a real thing uh, that benefits us day by day.
0: And you decided to mix it up a little bit. I see you have the uh, Theological Declaration of Barman and. In- instead of the Westminster, or do you have Westminster too?
1: No, uh, I thought this is a great time for us to expand a little bit, to s- look at other theological uh, statements. And the theological statement of Bar- Barnum is from the 20th century, and it was written by Christian Lutherans and Christian Reformed Christians, you know, uh, or Presbyterians were part of the, that reform group, as a response to the Nazi Party taking over the Uh, government of Germany. So the Theological Declaration of Barman, uh, it's written in a very particular way. It goes through several different points. It will have a quotation from scripture, and then something that they agree to is true. Here's what we believe. And then they say something that's untrue. So here's the first point of several points that are laid out in the Theological Declaration of Barman. The quotations are from uh, John chapter 14, verse 6, and John chapter 10, verses 1 and 9. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And it goes on to the, the statement, that's true. And then what they reject is false doctrine. Jesus Christ, as he has attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. We reject the false doctrine as though the church could and would have to acknowledge as a source of its proclamation apart from and beside the, this one word of God, Still other events and powers, figures and truths, as God's revelation. So that's a direct challenge to the a Nazi party saying that uh, you also have to listen to what the Nazi party says, and not just what the, uh, the one word of God, Jesus Christ, has said. And then the second point, again, it begins with a quotation here from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. As Jesus Christ is God's assurance of the forgiveness of all our sins, so in the same way and with the same seriousness is he also God's mighty claim upon our whole life. Through him befalls us a joyful deliverance from the godless fetters of this world for a free, grateful service to his creatures. We reject the false doctrine as though there were areas of our life in which we could or would not belong to Jesus Christ, but to other lords, areas in which we would not need justification and sanctification through him. So it's very much saying that you know, the, the gospel, the true gospel is, is political because it rejects as final authority other political systems or philosophies. When it comes down between God and state, we serve Jesus Christ first, which was a direct assault against what the Nazis were saying. And Pastor Steve, in his sermon, talked about the fact that uh, the gospel is political in that sense. You know, it's not like, you know, we don't go to church to hear political sermons. Uh, and, and we don't here at Mountain View, praise God. Mm-hmm. But it is saying that we declare that there's something greater than politics. There's something greater than uh, pride. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is truly Lord of Lords and King of Kings.
0: Mm.
1: So that's, a great, that's great. Yeah, a great thing for us to remember.
0: Well, each week in our new series on the Apostles Creed, we've been learning a little bit about the Apostles. Who do we have this week?
1: We have the Apostle Andrew, and he was uh, one of the 12 he was the brother of peter he's most famous for that and because of that he was a fisherman by trade just like peter was and it's andrew that convinces peter to come and follow jesus Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, we read in john chapter one andrew simon peter's brother was one of the two who heard what john that is john the baptist had said about jesus Mm -hmm. and who had followed jesus The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Uh, Andrew was the patron saint of Scotland and several other countries, including the Ukraine, um, because Presbyterian tradition uh, is rooted in Scotland uh, very much. Uh, We have the St. Andrew's Cross that's incorporated not only into the Scottish flag, but into the seal of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, which is interesting, and that is an X-shaped cross. Uh, so not like a T, but like an X. Mm-hmm. And the thought is from tradition that uh, St. Andrew was martyred for the faith on a cross shaped like that, a cross like an X mm-hmm. instead of a T. Interesting. Yeah. You know, we also say a little bit about uh, archeology span in this. Podcast, and I want to talk about the Nazareth inscription. Have you ever heard of the Nazareth inscription, Kirk? I don't think I have. So this is a description. Uh, sometimes we get archaeological artifacts on the antique market, and this is an example of something was found on the or bought on the antique market in the late 1800s by a French collector, and it's now in the Louvre Museum in Paris. So next time you're in the Louvre, you uh, might say, well, maybe I can find the Nazareth inscription there.
0: You know what? I probably walked by it because uh, I was in there, and my my wife was so frustrated with me from the previous day visiting the Vatican Museum.
1: Are you somebody that always reads all the little I have plaques? To, I
0: have to read all of them.
1: You read all of them, yeah, right? I do, and then Shelly,
0: she just was dragging me through the, through, <laughs> through the loop.
1: You know, my wife has the same complaint about me. I don't know what it is. But anyway, let me read you. You
0: and I can go to the museum <laughs> and They'll go have coffee.
1: I uh, probably have at least as good a time as you and I would. So let me read you this. So okay. this is uh, found. Uh, it was written uh, in Greek. And apparently it dates from the time of the emperor uh, Claudius. If you remember the PBS series, I, Claudius, it was a fictionalized version of, uh, of, of the life of Claudius. And he reigned as... Roman emperor between 41 and 54 AD. So this is translated from the Greek into English. Edict of Caesar. This is my decision concerning graves and tombs. Whoever has made them for the religious observances of parents or children or household members, that these remain undisturbed forever. But if anyone legally charges that another person has destroyed, or has in any manner extracted those who have been buried, or has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them, or has moved sepulchre sealing stones. Against such a person I order that a judicial tribunal be created, just as is done concerning the gods in human religious observations. Even more so will it be obligatory to treat with honor those who have been entombed. You are absolutely not to allow anyone to move those who have been entombed. But if someone does, I wish that violator to suffer capital punishment under the title of tomb breaker. Very unusual inscription, and to be found in Nazareth, so you wonder what in the world is going on here. Right. And it appears, you know, there is that passage at the end of Matthew's Gospel where it says that uh, the Jewish authorities were worried, you know, where did the body of Jesus go? Well, let's uh, pay the Roman guards to say, well, we fell asleep and, you know, his followers came and stole the body. And so apparently they began saying that and eventually got back to Caesar. And Caesar says, well, we're going to put an end to this Christian business once and for all. We'll just make it a capital punishment to steal um, a body out of a tomb. And they had it you know, published in Nazareth so because Jesus was from Nazareth. So it's very um so that story
0: of the disciples stealing the body is had had some legs
1: it had some legs it did, and it, it it's just remarkable for a Roman emperor to uh put something like this, so this is a monumental inscription in stone. It wasn't just a piece of papyrus handed out. I mean they said, we want people to know this is an important thing and probably to crush the early Christian movement so uh, a, a great uh, archaeological artifact to talk about when we begin talking about Jesus being fully human. Mm-hmm. The stuff really happened.
0: Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a person who lived in history, and there's a lot of evidence of that.
1: Exactly, and we'll get into some more evidence of that uh, next time okay. when we we'll continue to talk about that portion of the Apostles' Creed uh, on Jesus, uh, God's own Son.
0: Well, each week we've also had a C.S. Lewis quote and a Reformed theologian. Do you have a C.S. Lewis quote?
1: Yes, I think this would be a great time to talk about what's referred to as the trilemma, uh, uh, an argument that C.S. Lewis advances in mere Christianity. So let me read you the argument first. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. lewis to say you, you can't have your cake and eat it too with this you know who, who is jesus hmm. if he's a great moral teacher well how can he be that and claim to be the son of god
0: hmm. well i have a quote from our reformed uh speakers and again i'm gonna stick with uh j.i packer
1: good you not only have the quote you're going to share it with us
0: i'm going to share it with you yes and uh, he says this uh, again in his book called Growing in Christ. He says, This claim is central to the layout of the creed. I never thought about the layout of the creed before, but he says, hmm. For the long section on Jesus Christ stands between the two shorter sections on the Father and the Spirit, and it is central to the faith of the creed. For we could not know about the Trinity or salvation or resurrection and life everlasting apart from Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ in his redemption of all God's people who was the revealer of all these truths.
1: That's marvelous.
0: So the creed structure, you know, Jesus is supposed to be central in our lives, and here he is, he's central. I thought that was pretty Pretty cool to look at the Creed and its structure that that Christ is the center there too
1: you know when you're excited about a topic you you talk about it uh, you you hear that in the voice of uh, young people when they've discovered something they want to pursue in college or a career that gets them excited or maybe about uh, a new relationship in their lives. they want to talk to you about that and here the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Those who have gone before us, early Christians, they want to talk about Jesus. Uh, And that's a great thing to remember.
0: Right. And then I had from R.C. Sproul's book, Renewing Your Mind, Basic Christian Beliefs You Need to Know from R.C. Sproul. He said the overarching theme of the New Testament is not the birth of a baby, but the incarnation of God. The Christian faith stands or falls with the incarnation.
1: Indeed, it does. Uh, that great mystery, and yet uh, something that is so foundational. Hmm. If God hasn't become one of us in Jesus Christ, well, game over. Right. But it's not game over. We believe that with all our hearts. That's a good good place to end, I think. Well, Kirk, I think I closed in prayer last time. Do you want to close in prayer this time?
0: Did you? I thought I closed in prayer last oh, time. Oh,
1: well, would you close in prayer anyway this time? <laughs> sure.
0: Uh, Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for uh, this time together and we thank you for the, for the fact that, that you loved us so much uh, that you decided to to come down and to be among us uh, to empty yourself as it says in Philippians of your glory and of to become man and to uh, become for us the way and the truth and the life. Lord, we thank you for for that truth, and we thank you for that love that provided a way for us to be saved. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
1: Thank you, Kirk. Thank you, Bruce.